Today in the podcast, we are joined by Micah Lawrence, owner and head executive coach of Tailored Consulting. Micah has worked with organizations from startup right through to Fortune 500, and he shares three leadership insights that hold true across all of these business sizes. Micah helps us to understand why self-awareness is really underrated, why the most impactful leaders know how to coach, and why average leaders focus on the work, but great leaders focus on the environment. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Hey, Micah, welcome along to Business Leader Breakthroughs podcast. Fantastic to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Ryan. I'm excited to be here. Looking forward to talking about this topic. Indeed. Uh, it feels like we're very closely aligned. We've had a chance to have a brief chat uh, before we started recording. And uh, every every bullet point you brought up, I was like, yes, that's us. That's us. We agree. We agree. <laughs> nice. So maybe I'll have to play some devil's advocate on the way through just so we're not in agreement the whole way. It okay. Might be okay. For, Good call. for our listeners. So, oh, yeah, I, I might throw that in there. Love hey, it. Micah, let's, uh, let's ask you some of our fast fact questions so our audience can get to know you. Are okay. you a breakfast or dinner person? Dinner. I haven't had, I rarely have breakfast. I almost never eat breakfast. I, I intermittent fast. So dinner. And how strict are you around that intermittent fasting? Are you doing the whole eight hours on? No, anywhere from 14 to 16 hours of fasting is kind of my target. But if I want to have a snack late at night, later in the evening, I just do it. And if I want to have breakfast, because it sounds really good one day, I'll do that once a month, maybe. So not too strict. Well, we, we might have to dive into this a bit more. I'm, I'm buying a bit of the intermittent fasting myself. Are you? Might, cool. Yeah. We, might, we might have to run, run into that a bit, a bit more. Already uh, on holiday, would we find you doing something super adventurous, like doing a bungee jump? Or are you more like on the pool lounger with a cocktail kind of person? It's funny. I think if I had more willing partners, I'm, I would probably do more of the adventure, the adventuring. But my my family, my wife and three kids love traveling where there's history. So probably neither, actually. We'll, we would go somewhere where there's old, interesting history where we can learn something new. Right. I like that. And let's top of your head, where's one of the most interesting places you've traveled with a family that had the kind of rich history? We spent about a year and a half, my wife and I, planning a two-month trip to Europe. First time, and we wanted to take our kids, first time we'd been able to go and talk to my boss at the time and make sure that I had I was using PTO appropriately, but checking in with my team. And we spent two months just doing a wide circle around Western Europe. Well, we started in Spain, Italy. We hit Switzerland, Germany, Netherlands, the UK a little bit. We We didn't even have enough time to hit all of the places that we would have liked to go. But after two months in Europe, it was one of the most memorable experiences we've had as a family and we can't wait to go back and do it again. So like you did a terrible job of narrowing that down to one place that you've right? been to out. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll, put, I'll, I'll narrow it down to Sintra, Portugal was probably the most magical place we went that we didn't expect to be our favorite. There were ca four different castles within 20 minutes or 15 minutes of each other, a really beautiful old monastery. Uh, it was just a beautiful quaint part of Portugal that we would love to go back to someday. Love it, very cool. When you are reading, do you like real books or you Kindle, electronic, have a, have a million books with you? Audio books. Yeah. Electronic. Right. Audio. Audio. Audio books allow me to take it with me. And so when I'm exercising, I'll listen to an audio book. If I'm driving long distance to go visit family, I'm listening to audio books. So that's become my habit. I love consuming audio books at a little bit faster than the, the normal speed so that I can really uh, take, learn more, but also be making, uh, making use of time that would otherwise be downtime. 
I like it. Super efficient uh, and yeah. functional. Good job. <laughs> I'm starting to get some insight into personality here, Mike. Yeah, right. Um, okay, this is the most critical question for the entire podcast. Cats or dogs? Oh, my preference is dogs. I I think that I will like cats, but then every time I interact with a cat, they're so mean. I'm like, no, where's the dog? Let's get some dogs in yeah. here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're a big dog right? person, it looks like. I'm a, I'm yeah. a dog guy, so... Yeah, yeah, me too. Was, uh, we, we do have a good week. Okay. Uh, routine wise, are you an early riser or a night owl? I'm more of a night owl. Yeah, I, I have some good creative time in the evenings when things get quiet around the house and I'm just working, uh, working or thinking or sitting or, or reflecting. Nice. Okay. And if you were to do some entertainment time, we're watching a movie, what genre is you go to? Uh, I like adventure, action, adventure, and comedy. Those are my go-tos. Okay. Nice, nice blend. Yeah. Something, something light and funny and then something a bit more. Yeah, with a little bit of action too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good job. Have you, have you got a, have you got a movie recommendation for us? I don't. We've, we're behind. My wife and I usually consume entertainment together in the evenings and we have not, we've not been doing it over the last few months because it's just been it's been really busy and we're boring and we're ready to go to sleep so a lot of times we'll we'll just sit in bed she'll fall asleep before me and so i'll sit in bed and get stuff done or yeah. journal or things like that nice i like it so it probably sounds a whole lot more productive than yet another another movie or another uh, episode sure but i mean uh, we need to decompress sometimes too so i got yeah. i gotta find that balance can't be yeah. burning the candle on both ends Nice, Micah. Alrighty, let's turn our conversation to all things leadership. You are an expert in this field, Mike. You've worked with everything from startups through to Fortune 500 organizations, very executive senior leader level uh, work through to teams in those organizations. Uh, we like on this podcast to hear your top three leadership insights. Could you share those with us? And then we'll maybe dive into a deeper conversation around each of them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my my first would be that self-awareness is underrated. Number two would be the most impactful leaders know how to coach or have coaching competency or training. And my third would be average leaders focus on the work, but excellent leaders focus on the environment. Right. So good. A lot to unpack. Let's come back to the self-awareness one. It's something that we are super aware of ourselves. Uh, we shape a lot, we shape a lot of our own training and develop around this, this idea. We have a little phrase that we say people, uh, we teach people skills, but they learn awareness. Love I'm it. really interested to explore your, your understanding of the self-awareness. Why is it so important? And then how do you go about helping uh, people yeah. discover the self-awareness? Part of what we offer at my company is uh, executive coaching. We work with a lot of leaders one-on-one. -on -one. It's funny how often a leader will start our conversation by saying, I feel like I know myself really well. It, it, everybody thinks that they know themselves really well. And in a lot of ways we do. We, we're the person that has the most experience with ourselves. We should know ourselves pretty well. But when we talk about self-awareness and the way that we do it tailored consulting is we use an assessment from Gallup. Most people have probably heard of this. Many people have taken it. If you've ever worked at a Fortune 500 company, you've probably taken the Clifton Strengths assessment and at least seen your top five strengths. And what I often tell leaders when we're first introducing them to this tool, after usually after they've taken it for the first time, is that you shouldn't have learned anything about yourself that you didn't already know or that didn't resonate with you. But by using a tool like this, we get to put language or find a common language to explain things about yourself that you've always known, but that either you didn't know how to explain or you didn't realize needed to be explained. And that's where a lot of self-awareness happens is we don't realize that 
this natural tendency of mine or this way that I see the world isn't easy for other people. And I expect it to be. And so sometimes I don't have empathy for other people who aren't good at what I'm good at. And sometimes I'm hard on myself for not being good at what other people are good at. And we don't always give ourselves credit for what's a talent in me or a talent in somebody else. And what does that even mean? So when I talk about self-awareness and we use something like the Clifton Strengths Assessment to put words to those things that are important for you to know about yourself, I often say that we're not just growing self-awareness, we're growing others' awareness too. And that's just as important as you lead teams to know these are my tendencies and preferences. And I can explain those using strengths-based language if the Clifton Strengths Assessment is the tool that you happen to use. But just as important and valuable is being able to put language to things about other people that may be different from the way that you think so that you can be more tolerant of differences and look to other people for partnership when you know yourself deeply enough to know where do I need partnership? What am I lacking? What am I good at? And what are those opportunities to work with other people in a productive way? Uh, spot on, Mike. We what I love about that awareness, and it's the very, very lowest baseline of this, which is you use the word differences, and it's that just the awareness that not everyone's like me. And I yeah. think as a default pattern, we tend to go, "Hey, I'm really visual, so when I'm explaining something to someone else, I'll draw pictures because you know yeah. that's how I like to get information. So clearly, that must be how everyone else does. Or maybe you don't even think about that; you just kind of right. you, you default to default to your mode. So uh, highlighting those differences are, are really really cool. Tell me, have you observed someone that's that's created a real breakthrough for them of going, "Wow, I." Prior to doing this kind of assessment, I just, you know, maybe I lack that awareness and, you know, it's really brought it to the fore for them and how that played out in, in the teams that they were working with. One a quick example was with a leader that I was working with probably mid last year had had we'd been going through their strengths. And a lot of what we do is we talk about the strengths kind of academically. This is what they mean. It, by by the textbook definition or what Gallup intended them to mean. But we also leave room for them to explore what that looks like for them and not feel like they, they're being put in a box or labeled certain sure. things mm-hmm. or stereotyped based on these strengths. And so as we go through their strengths, I also, we have an opportunity to talk through, now what does this look like for you? And I remember one time talking about one of the strengths and going into some detail And it looked like they were starting to glaze over a little bit as we were talking. So I paused and I was like, okay, so I just talked a little bit about the academic definition of the strength and some of my own impressions of what that might look like for you as a leader. What resonated with you? Like what what's going through your head right now? And I thought maybe they'd just been distracted or thinking of something else. And and they were almost emotional when they responded. They're like, I just it clicked for me. You just explained something about me that I've been trying to figure out with my therapist for three years. <laughs> and it was, it was such an interesting observation that, that I had that as this person was internalizing what we were talking about, we had put words, not, not just that we had put words to something about themselves that was true, but we framed it in a positive way. And they had spent the last three years looking at it as a negative to be overcome or managed or suppressed. And I was able to reframe it as a positive thing that maybe has gotten out of control a little bit and to understand that there's nothing wrong with you. It's just people think differently and that's okay. And when you have words to put to it, to explain something about how they show up at work and why that might rub people the wrong way sometimes, it makes them feel empowered, like they have a little bit more control over how they show up in the future by giving them that that language. 
I do have another example, but I want to pause real quick and just see if you had any thoughts, if you've if you've experienced that. Uh, similar similar approach and or understanding insights that we've had with people we've worked with, and that I think the common language piece is really helpful. Yeah. So you know you're using the the shift and strengths tool. It it gives people an opportunity in a team to refer to you know maybe some behaviors, but identify it with a with a language that everyone understands. So then you can actually have feedback inside your team, and you can yeah we use a slightly different tool, and it allows allows a common language that our team internally can talk to. Yeah. And sometimes I'll come into a meeting and I'm like, hey team, I am in driver mode. And the, you know, I won't go into the to the tool you use, but you know, this is people understand what that means. Equally, there'll be other situations where they're like, hey Ryan, your driver mode is just like really taking over here. Can you <laughs> can you pause yeah. it and balance it out with some of the other other styles? And I'm like, yeah, great. Thanks. Good insight. Good I, you know, I was definitely in that in that zone. So I really like that common language piece. Yeah. It really helps. Yeah. And what you're talking about too is there there are a lot of assessments out there. DISC is a really common one. Myers Briggs is one that, that people use a lot in the workplace. And I always tell leaders, if you've already got one in your organization, use that one, lean into that one, especially if there's some training that's gone into it. But if you haven't used one before, I I prefer the Clifton Strengths Assessment because I feel like it's a little bit more robust. It goes to a level a little bit deeper than many of the assessments that have four categories or some combination of four. The Clifton Strengths has 34 different strengths. And so the possible combinations is so high it creates a little bit more space for people to feel individualized, feel unique and realize that even if I share some strengths with somebody else on my team, we can still show up differently because of all of the other strengths that we bring to the table or our values that we bring to the table or my own life experience and work experience that makes me who I am. So if you've already got an assessment that you're using, lean into it, push, push it to the forefront Give it a little more attention because it can be a huge tool for self-awareness. But if you don't already, I recommend the, the Clifton Strengths Assessment. That can be really valuable too. I think a good question when someone goes, oh, we've already done an assessment is to be able to ask that person, oh, so can you run me through your, whatever word you use, profile or strengths or whatever it might be. Yeah. And if their immediate response is like, oh, I kind of need to go and look that up and try and remember what <laughs> yeah. I was, it's like, okay, may- maybe that tool either wasn't wasn't great because it was too complex or, or too much in it, or, you know, you certainly need to, to revisit it. So, yeah. yeah, constant practice around all these things is important, right? Well, and that's, I think, what most people struggle with. It, I, I'll go into... I'll do team workshops where everybody takes the assessment and then I'll come facilitate them through a half day or a full day where we'll talk about what does this mean and how do you use it in a practical way. And oftentimes I'll go work with people who one of the first things I ask is how many of you had taken this assessment before? And when it's Fortune 500 companies, there's some crazy high percentage, like 92 or 95 percent of Fortune 500 companies have used the Clifton Strengths Assessment from Gallup. It's very well known in the corporate world. But when I ask people to raise their hand, a lot of hands go up. And then I'll ask them that question. How, how many of you could tell me your top five strengths right now? And, and those hands go down or they start looking for their papers. And so it's like we don't we don't do a good enough job more often than not training people how to use a tool like this. And that's the struggle. It's fascinating and novel to go take it. But then what do we do with it? That's the hard part is there's this long tail of implementation 
that really requires work and refreshing and repeating and revisiting what you learned originally before maybe six months or 12 months or 18 months down the road, you really, it catches on in your culture and you're using it as a productive tool. So for anybody who's done this before and you're thinking, you know, it didn't work for us, it could. It's just, you have to have patience and build in routines, like you were saying, that allow people to use it within the company. And then there'll be this tipping point where it clicks. And you start using it in a productive way to solve problems, to assign work, to do development planning and performance management. It can be any tool that you use can be a really valuable asset for things like that, but it does take time. Sure. And Micah, maybe this provides a youthful segue into your second leadership insight, which was around the most impactful leaders know how to coach. Um, Can you help us join the dots? You've been with an organization, they've done lift and strengths, they've started getting understanding. How would you encourage a leader to bring that knowledge now into their coaching? And then we'll we'll explore a bit more of the the, the depths of coaching. No, I love that. Good question. So one of the things that we'll often do for the very reason that we were just talking about, that it's hard to implement something like uh, a tool like the Clifton Strengths Assessment, uh, especially because it's just that. It's a tool. It's not the end goal or the outcome we're going for. The outcome we're going for is a healthy culture and engaged workforce and high-performing teams. That's what we actually want. We want to reduce team dysfunction and increase collaboration and engagement. So the way that we do that is we'll build in executive coaching for the leadership team monthly for one, just so that we're having these regular interactions where we're trying to grow the leader but there's also some focus on growing the team and we'll we'll even have conversations with these leaders if they're struggling with an employee whose performance maybe is slipping we'll have them bring in the strengths report of that employee and talk about now where might this employee be coming from and why might there how could we explain what they need to succeed and whenever we have those conversations leaders leave really with two things the first is empathy for their employee i'll hear the words I feel like I understand this employee better having talked about their strengths, which is just a huge benefit in itself. But the second thing is that we'll see them have ideas. I think I, I think I know what I can try to improve or help this employee grow and improve their performance. And that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where it becomes valuable. The other thing that we do is we teach, we do some regular, we call them mastermind sessions where it's just all of the leaders come together We spend an hour together talking about a leadership principle, and we'll often use coaching as one of the first ones that we share. And it's a nice segue between knowing a tool like the Clifton Strengths and then applying it in in real time or in the real world. And the coaching principles that we focus on more than any are, are three. The first is helping leaders be present. And when they have interaction interactions with their employees, to let go of all the stuff that they, they have to get done and put their phone down, put their laptop away, be with somebody and just don't worry about what else is going on in your world because they can feel that. They know that they're not as important to you as your laptop or as your phone or as this you know work that you know needs to get done if you're being distracted by those things. The second thing is we talk about active listening, not worrying about what you're going to say next or try to inject your own advice or what you think they should do, but just to sit back and listen and let them have an opportunity to talk. It is 
one of the hardest, it makes sense. Like most leaders nod their head like, yeah, I'm good at that. But when we check back in later, they'll admit I'm not good at that. I always have something to say. I mean, most leaders are, you've probably experienced this. Most leaders are really good at their job. They were promoted because they were good and competent at what they did. And so now how tempting is that when you do feel like you know the answer and you have an opinion to share that with somebody and tell them what to do rather than giving them an opportunity to to share the situation and draw out of them a solution that they feel is right. And that's where the third principle of coaching comes in. And that's just learning to ask good questions, being genuinely curious and ask what's going on. What have you tried? How can I help? What what do you think might work that you haven't tried? Really simple questions that draw out of your employees their own solution that they're more bought into and more excited about trying to the point where you're actually creating more self-sufficiency in your employees rather than being the person they always come to for answers. So those, I would say those are the three coaching principles that we really emphasize a lot that seems to resonate with leaders in a powerful way. And Mike, being a podcast, obviously people can't see me sitting here nodding along to everything you've been yeah. saying and that I'm in <laughs> complete agreement, but you know, let me try my devil advocate, devil's advocate hat right now. So a experienced leader you're talking to and you're talking about this coaching and you know explore and ask good questions and be present and the leader's like hey that's a nice idea Mikey but man we have got so much to get done around here Um, I've been in in this role for you know x number of years I'm very experienced these these junior people come to me and I know exactly what they should do so why would I you know spend all this long time trying to coach them and when I could just tell them what to do Yeah. Well, that's where I turn it into a coaching conversation with them. So I'll start asking them questions. What what do you want more? Do you want an employee base that looks to you for all of the answers, which feeds ego? That feels good when people come to me and I know the answer and I tell them and they go do it. That is a culture of compliance. And maybe some leaders need that or want that. But do you want that or do you want a culture where of empowerment, where your people feel empowered to try things out, to come up with their own solutions, to even fail and make mistakes, because those those would require very different leaders. So I'll ask them questions like that. What's more important to you? And maybe sometimes the answer is, no, I need a culture of compliance. Maybe we're highly regulated. There are a lot of legal requirements around our business. Okay, maybe compliance is right for you. But for most leaders, they feel overwhelmed and burdened by having everybody, why do I have to have the answer to everybody's problems? And the more you can really implement a coaching perspective to leadership, the more you're actually training them to trust themselves, make decisions, and only escalate to you when they feel like something is out of their control or maybe a bigger deal than it might otherwise be. It It's hard for leaders. I think this is where your question comes from. It's hard for a lot of leaders to let go of how things are done. And it comes with people making mistakes. And I have to I have to revisit that with them. How comfortable are you with the idea that your people are going to make some mistakes and make some wrong choices before they become self-sufficient? But eventually they'll get to a point where I know when I come to Ryan as my leader that he's just going to pepper me with some really thoughtful questions. But he always asks me, what have you tried? What haven't you tried that you think might work? How might I help? These things that are still coming from a place of you're not telling them, I don't want you to come to me with your problems. You're still welcoming them. But when they know that you're going to ask them these questions that dive deeper, they know that they can they start to realize they can answer those questions themselves and they they feel empowered and they become self-sufficient. So 
in, in a nutshell, to answer your question, it, it probably depends on the leader. I'll do some coaching with them and ask them, what's more important to you and what do you want out of your team? Hold on, Micah. And being able to build the expectation around those questions, those questions live on almost, how would I say, in the subconscious, right? So yeah. you, you know, there'll be you've had that interact that coaching interaction with a team member a few times, you know, they will be sitting there processing those questions before they even come in and visit you next time. And, and often they'll go, actually, now I have figured out how to solve this. Yeah. I don't need you. Anymore. And I'm, I, yeah. And, and I'm doing a terrible job of devil's advocate right now, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in full and full agreement. Yeah. No, I loved that question oh. though, because I think that's true. Yeah. A lot of leaders hear something conceptual or academic. Well, this is a principle of leadership that everybody should do, but, it, but deep down they're like, okay, but my team's hard. This is hard. We have operational uh, priorities that I can't just step out of the weeds all the time and be thinking big picture and creating, you know, an environment my team can thrive. And it's like, well, that's all the more reason to do that and to think about yeah. what your actions and being too tactical, what that does for your team and what what your team could be like if you implemented some of these principles that sound that sound nice and sound maybe a little bit fluffy on the surface, but in practicality, they really can make a difference for how your team performs over the long term. And whenever I talk to senior leaders, one of the questions I always ask them is, who's run out of things to do? Who's like getting to the end of the day going, there's just nothing else I've, I've got to do. You know, of course, no one's ever said I've run out of no things to do. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, so how, how much time are you spending on the areas of the business where you know you add the most value? So as a, as a senior leader, it might be more strategy. It's about thinking about tomorrow's business, not kind of re reacting to yesterday's business, et cetera. And, you know, I'm definitely not getting enough time working on the stuff that I should be should be working on. And then turning that conversation back to, well, if we could raise the capability of the people that are in your team and nice. they were going to take more of that operational load off, off you, how would that be? And you know, that's a foundation principle for, for us and we're working with, with teams. I love those questions. And you're touching on a strengths-based approach to leadership, This is, or really to team development as a whole. And it's there are other assessments. So going back to the Clifton Strengths Assessment, it's one of many assessments that fall under strengths-based development. DISC is another one that's considered a strengths-based assessment, which fall under positive psychologies, focusing on what are the things that you're best at. And as a leader at, at the senior level, I'll often ask, what would you just totally cut out of your job description if you didn't have to do it? And obviously we can't do that. There are things that have to be done, but those are the first place that I go for delegating. How do you build up? And I love the way you put this, build up the capability of the rest of the team to take on some of that work that maybe you dread or procrastinate, but feel like you should be doing. Chances are there's somebody around you in your support system or in your employee group who not only would be better at those things than you, but love that work. And going back to your comment before, we get in our own heads and think, well, I don't like doing this work, so I don't want to push that on other people because they won't like it too. Who says? They yeah. might love that work. I talk to teams all the time where I'll ask them, what's the thing you hate to do? One person will raise their hand and be like, I hate data entry. I don't get to interact with my, my, with my friends that I work with, my coworkers that I love to interact with. And I just sit there and put in numbers. And someone else on the team will kind of raise their hand and be like, oh, that's my favorite. I would love to do more of that work. Put on my headphones, listen to some music, do the data entry, not have to talk to anybody. That's a dream job. And it's like with leaders, we have to talk about that stuff. What's the thing that you don't want to do? And because somebody else is better at that and they also love it. And we need to yeah. find ways to delegate your work. 
to spread the load and get more people doing what they're good at and what they love, including you as a leader. Yeah. And while well, we could take this conversation in so many directions, but I think it it also, when it comes to recruitment, so often we can fault to recruiting people that kind of seem like us. Yeah. And it's a idea. terrible way to build a team <laughs> because, you know, if, you, if you're computer, if you recruiting more people like you, there's not going to be anyone there who wants to do the uh, headphones and music on, do the data entry, right? Yeah. Um, some so, yeah, some of your best partners are going to be the people that are most different from you. And you're missing 100%. out if you're hiring people like you. All righty. Uh, let's talk about average leaders focus on the work, excellent or great leaders focus on the environment. So I think we're all probably pretty cognizant of what focusing on the work means. When yeah. you use the word environment, what does what does that mean to you? A lot of people use the word culture. I love that word, but it's also, it's a little abstract. And so I get that uh, it means different things to different people. And I actually think that culture uh, in a lot of organizations is is kind of like a fingerprint. It's different for everybody. And what's good is different for everybody. But there are some things that can be different from organization to organization, and yet they're both still good. However, I do think there are some things that should be consistent across every organization. And it's creating an environment where there's a clear purpose. Your people know why they're there and what you're accomplishing. And it's meaningful to them that they're contributing to something meaningful or bigger than themselves. There, there are clear working agreements. Expectations are set well. And I know what's expected of me here. And this is this is the way things are done here is clear. Expectations are, are set and communicated and enforced. Things like psychological safety, that I can make mistakes and not be afraid of what that's going to do. Because once people are afraid to make mistakes, and then they hide them from you as a leader. And it's like one thing after another, it, it builds into something that can become out of control for leadership to, to bring back. Uh, and then things like belonging, making people feel like they're accepted in the workplace, regardless of their shortcomings and their and their their quirks or their interests or their religion and things like that, that they can feel belonging in their organization. That's big picture stuff. Most leaders, and I alluded to this before, most leaders, especially inexperienced leaders, are promoted into a role of leadership that's related to what they were competent at as an employee or individual contributor. And when that's the case, there's some there's a they have difficulty now separating their value from the work that they used to do to their role as a leader and how the work actually changes and so they learn from their first leadership role that now i'm just the best of the people who do the work and i need to tell people what to do and i need to send you know give them the how not the what whereas leaders who are more experienced learn over time I'm not supposed to be the best at the work. In fact, I'm supposed to hire people who are better than me or train them to be better than me at the work and then let them go do the work. If I can create an environment where they feel belonging, where they feel safe to experiment and try things and innovate and make mistakes, and I'm okay with that. If I'm the one communicating a clear purpose and expectations for my employees, that's those are the leaders where they realize. I can make, I can have such a huge impact, way bigger than me being the best of the people doing the work. If I enable my people to do the work better by thinking about the environment as a whole. Okay. I've got a couple of uh, great questions for you, Mike. The first okay. one, uh, identifying purpose. I'm really interested in this in organizations 
spend a lot of time, energy trying to identify their purpose for the organization. And they're normally trying to uh, mold that into a few words or a single sentence and then go, hey, I know we've got 100 or X thousand employees here, but we're now all following this one purpose. I think the likelihood that you're going to get everyone in the organization immediately resonate with that is incredibly difficult. How do you help organizations think about purpose and address that challenge is that we're all individuals and trying to align to one single purpose is going to be a challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it comes to, so a lot of my training in my corporate job, uh, so I, I worked at a Fortune 100 company for about 11 years. And for eight years of that, I did strategic planning facilitation. So I kind of bring a little bit of that perspective to organizational development and things like mission, vision, and values at the highest level of the organization uh, can't be underestimated the importance of articulating those things. And I'll often tell organizations, we'll work on a draft of what that might be like. And it feels like such a daunting task to define that in a succinct and meaningful way that I usually give people permission to consider it a living document. At some point, as you iterate on it or you implement it and and get feedback, like don't expect it to be an event developing these things. It's a little bit of a process. And if you give yourself permission to iterate on what that might look like over time, but also don't do it in a vacuum, include your employees, include your stakeholders and include your customers, you'll find that it shapes itself over time. So that would be my biggest piece of advice is there are different structures and formats for how you write a mission statement, how you define values, how you write a purpose statement. Those can be helpful. But I think the biggest thing is giving yourself a little bit of uh, permission to iterate and extending the exercise to more than just the leadership team. I like that. And I think having giving scope for individual leaders of their individual teams to have that discussion around, well, what does this purpose mean to us? How do we interpret it? How do we feel aligned or not? Can we have a you know five degree uh, shift from that purpose? Where you know you know we're we're still generally heading in the same direction, but yeah. what would really mean something for our, for our team here would be this kind of version of that. I think that can be super powerful for individuals as well, and that that power that comes back to the team can be useful because the uh, you will have seen this working in very large organisations. The sense that these things are being imposed on us by a senior hierarchy, right? We came in on yeah, Monday morning, the new value, the new values posters were on the wall and now we're being told what our values are. You know, that's yeah. a, that's a, a, a tough thing to swallow. And, a, and we talk a lot to our clients about you actually experience culture with the people you spend the most time with in the organization. Yeah. So you know, as a team member in a satellite office, you probably potentially have never had any uh, direct interaction with the CEO if it's a large organization, or maybe you've been on a Zoom call with 8,000 other people listening to their update. Um, where do you experience your culture? You experience your culture with your teammates, that's with it. your leader, you know, with and that's that's where culture has to live and, live and grow is in that uh, smaller team. Yeah, and I, I often say culture, as much as leaders want to think that they're in control of the culture, it's culture is in the mind of the employee. How how they perceive it is what your culture actually is. So not including them in exercises like that is a big mistake because they're the ones that actually have the key to what makes your culture what it is. And, and if you did do 
you know, a values or mission exercise in a vacuum as a leadership team, and then you try to push it onto your people, that becomes a part of your culture. We work at a place where the leadership team is totally disconnected from who we are and what we want. They don't even ask us for input. Here we go again. They're sending us all these values and things and they're rolling their eyes. You don't know that as a leadership team because you didn't talk to them about it. That becomes now part of your culture. And that's not what you intended. Most of the time you intended the opposite. Your intentions were good, but it's not perceived that way because you didn't include the most important factor in understanding your culture. And that's your employees. So good. Uh, My second question, Micah, is around engagement. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to share a hypothesis with you, and I'm, I'm interested for your opinion. Ooh, cool. on it. So we have this hypothesis that engagement has, pendulum on engagement has swung way to one side. And that is that employees now ask questions like, what are you going to do to keep me engaged? And I feel like, you know, maybe Silicon Valley can take some ownership of this one where, you know, there was tequila parties and massages <laughs> and fruit bowls and, you know, yeah, whatever free food all the time. Yeah. All, all that kind of, kind of stuff. And employees have grown to the zone of going, well, hey, it's now the company's responsibility to keep me engaged. How would you how would you respond to that that thought? That is that is such a good hypothesis. Let's talk it out. I love Gallup's research, both on strengths based development, but they also have a ton of research on engagement and the way that Gallup defines engagement. And you can Google this if you've never heard of this before, because it's worth reading for every leader is they have something called their Q12 or it's really 12 questions that are indicators of employee engagement. And what I love about this is that it takes It takes a perspective that separates like perks and benefits from what actually contributes to engagement, which can be deeper and even simpler, but not easy things that contribute to engagement. And so when you when you want to see like the outcome that engagement actually produces, engaged employees are more productive. They have higher job satisfaction. They have better retention. And there's even better profitability for companies that have generally higher engaged or more engaged employees because it's felt by your customers too through customer uh, satisfaction and things like that so we know everybody wants those benefits but what what are the actual contributors it's actually things like the number one contributor the first question in that q12 list from gallup's research is do i know what's expected of me at work how simple is that to just put some effort as a leadership team into helping your employees know what's actually expected of them at work and clarifying that and answering questions. Because when I don't have to guess what's expected of me or if I'm meeting my manager's expectations, I feel at peace with my job. But if I feel like I'm guessing and I have actually no idea if I'm meeting expectations, I might start looking for another job because I think my job is at risk when maybe it's not and you're doing a a bang up job, but you don't know that because expectations aren't clear. The second one is things like, do I have the tools and equipment that are required to do my job well? And if I don't have a laptop that actually has the programs I need to be a graphic designer or projectors to give presentations in the conference rooms, something as simple as having the tools and equipment and what's expected of employees at work. These are not sexy things. We leaders are tempted by the bright and shiny objects of, you know, I, we need to create a sushi bar or, you know, a tequila bar or, you know, nights out or somewhere to nap in the building, things, things that are totally perks and they're completely overlooking actual indicators or contributors to engagement. So I do think that there's an attitude 
of maybe we've conditioned employees to seek out the perks when maybe we should condition them to seek out some of these other things that really do mean something to engaged employees. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Super aligned. We really use the word contribution rather than engagement and balance that. And there's the uh, organization's responsibility to enable you to contribute. So mm. things like the, the working laptop, like you've got to have those kind of tools and that's the responsibility of the organization. But equally on the employee side, you've got to step up to the plate. We're here to make sure you've got the things you need to do. We're looking for your contribution. And we like that word contribution because it talks Me to too. not just getting stuff done or ticking off the to-do list. And it's really interesting the responses you get from people when you say, what was your greatest contribution yesterday? And contribution might be, you know what? I, I saw Micah. He's normally a super high energy guy. He's always got a smile on his face. And yesterday that just wasn't him. So I literally just waited for a, an appropriate moment and went over and said, hey, Micah, how, how's, how's your world today? Oh, cool. And that might be the greatest contribution you make for your yeah. organization on that day. And it, was, it wasn't on your to-do list. Work. It wasn't in the yeah. strategic plan. It wasn't the work, right? But yeah, that, those, cool. those small moments can build culture and can make people feel uh, valued. And I think the coming back to something you raised earlier, which is in those moments of coaching, like don't be distracted, don't be looking at your phone, don't be looking at your laptop, because no one feels valued when you're when you're doing that. Right. And we've seen incredible responses when we've implemented coaching into organizations. And yeah. people are like, you know what? That's the that's the first conversation I've had with my leader that wasn't about the to-do list. Ooh. It was about it was about me as an individual yeah, and how I'm tracking one. and what's what's going on, right? And you're like coming back to the doesn't have to be sexy, it doesn't have to be expensive. It's like yeah. actually value your people as humans. Spend 15 minutes with eye contact and active listening. You'll be you'd be amazed what happens to your culture. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. man, I love that. And totally totally agree. I think it's interesting how adversarial we often make the relationship between leadership and employees or, uh, you know, companies and job candidates. And I feel like we, we need to shift that mindset and remember that we all want the same thing. A company wants an engaged employee that stays uh, at the company for a long time, but that's what your employees want too. They want to be engaged. They want to contribute to something meaningful. They want to be compensated fairly but there's research that says that there's a level of compensation that everybody needs where compensation no longer becomes important beyond things like autonomy, uh, purpose and mastery, like the Daniel Pink book, things like that, that if we just remember that we all want the same thing, it can feel more like a partnership than like an adversarial relationship. Hey, Mike, I really enjoyed our conversation. We're ridiculously well aligned. You know, I try. I tried to spice it <laughs> you up. You did your best. Uh, you did good. I you did, did my good. best. Uh, it was it was pretty hopeless, but you know, I tried my <laughs> best. Imagine we've got a someone who's been a leader for a long time. They've been in that leadership role, and maybe some of our conversation today has prompted them to go, "Hey, maybe I should do something a bit different." What would you encourage them to do as a first step? I honestly, the first, my first go-to is to find a coach and we do an executive coach. There, there are a lot of coaches out there. It can be hard to find a good coach. So I always recommend meeting with at least two as well. So meet with two or three coaches 
get a feel for what they have to offer and how you how they resonate with you, how you connect with them. There there should be a little bit of chemistry. You should enjoy talking to your coach and look forward to future conversations. And I think it requires a, an amount of humility, especially for senior leaders, to accept that you you still have some room to grow and that there's more potential in you to untap. And with that mindset and a willingness to seek out a coach, I'm confident you'll see some growth. Even even as an experienced leader, when you find the right coach, it can take you to a new level that you probably didn't anticipate. And when you're thinking about selecting that coach, having interviewed a few of them, should you go for the one that you're going to be like, it's going to be so fun catching up with them. We're just going to have great. <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be amazing. Or should you be looking for someone who like, I think they're going to make me you know, mildly uncomfortable. Mildly uncomfortable should be a priority. We, You should feel like you can be honest and transparent with your coach, which maybe requires just a touch of I'm looking forward to, like we connect well and I'm looking forward to seeing this person. But it's got to be somebody who's willing to challenge you when you say something dumb or you're not living up to your values or you're not, you know, being the kind of leader that you've expressed you want to be that that coach needs to speak up and keep you in check. So I would I would look for maybe a combination of both. But if you're not uncomfortable sometimes in in a coaching conversation, maybe it's time to look for another. You maybe need to look for another coach. Yeah, love it. Good, uh, good advice there, Michael. Good question. Yeah, Michael, good question. How, how can how can our audience connect with you? I would say the easiest way to connect with me is through LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn every day. I post every day. Check out my profile. You can send me a message. That's I do have a website and I do have an email address we can share. But that's the best way for people to experience some of my own like thoughts and what I share about leadership on a regular basis. But I also am in my messages every day, so it's a great way to contact me. Okay, thanks, Mike, and we'll make sure your LinkedIn profile connection is in the show notes so people can find that nice and easily. Mike, thanks for spending some time with us on the podcast today. It's been a, a joy to talk. Great to hear you're doing such wonderful work out there for uh, a really broad range of organizations and really helping them shape these things that we all know when they're good. Like we know when culture is good, we can we can kind of almost, we can sense it, we can feel it. But, the, but it sounds like you've got some really great practical tips on how you can make that happen. So thanks for sharing those insights and thanks for sharing the time with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I had a really good time. Take care.